we're going to handle Jehovah Witnesses and Mormonism tonight. And I apologize, I was speaking bigger than I am, I guess. I wanted to handle also Catholicism. We just simply don't have time for it. So we're going to try to do Jehovah Witnesses and Mormonism tonight. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you tonight that we can gather together, learn more about your word. And also, Lord, we give you praise that you are the Holy One of Israel. You are both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And tonight, I ask, Lord, that you would help equip the saints for battle. And, Lord, that you would help us all to have a response to those who ask for the hope that lies within us with gentleness and respect. And, Lord, I pray in advance for Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons that come to our doorsteps, Lord, that you would permeate their hearts with your, with your Holy Spirit to regenerate them so they may perceive and receive the gospel. And, Lord, help us to bring them to saving faith in the true Jesus, the Jesus that um, came to pay for all sins. And, Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, now, tonight, I've got a lot to cover. So what I'm going to do is I'll probably go for 50 minutes, and that'll probably cover Jehovah Witnesses, and we'll take our break. And then we'll try to handle Mormonism, okay? But let me give you a brief history because I think it's important to understand kind of where these heresies came from initially. And with the Jehovah Witnesses, it all stems from a man named Charles Taze Russell. He was born in Allegheny, Pennsylvania in 1852. um, When he is about 15 years old, he actually ends up working with his father at a clothing store. So he kind of grows up fast. And he's into theology at an early age. So Russell switches from Presbyterian to Congregationalist at age 15. And he hates two doctrines, predestination and hell. And it's important for us to realize that at an early age, he hated the doctrine of hell. And that translates later into the Jehovah Witness denial of hell being eternal punishment. They believe in something called annihilationism. So you are completely destroyed. You cease to exist. All right, And we may have time to talk about that later. In 1870, Skeptical Russell is reinvigorated at a second Advent meeting, and it's really a remnant from this what's called a, the Millerite movement. There was a man named Miller. I'm trying to remember his first name. It was William, William Miller. He was a farmer, and this guy actually prophesied in 1844 that the Lord would come. Well, guess what? He didn't. <laughs> We're still here, right? Well, then he said, well, I was off a little bit, so he just kept pushing the date back a little bit. Well, finally, people got onto that. And the movement kind of fell apart. Well, Russell is involved with this. He loves to try to guess the date of the Lord's coming. And what's interesting is this movement later turns into the Seventh-day Adventists. But anyway, Russell is reinvigorated at one of these meetings, and allegedly he comes to faith. And so now he is sold out to be a theologian for God. And then in 1875, he ends up believing that Jesus came spiritually in 1874. All right, now, again, that's rank heresy. We know from the scriptures that Jesus, when he comes, is coming bodily. Uh, Acts chapter 1, remember, as he's ascending, what do the, uh, do the angel says to the disciples, men of Galilee, why do you gaze skyward? This same Jesus is coming back in like manner. Well, how did he ascend? Well, he ascended bodily. How is he coming? He's coming bodily. Okay, so we know they're wrong, but that's what he teaches. That's what he believes. Him and another man named Barber, they teach these Adventists in Rochester, New York, that Jesus came spiritually in 1874. Well, then he publishes this three worlds or plan of redemption, which he explains that the millennium began in 1874. Well, of course, later on then he has to change that to 1914 because in 1914 is the alleged year that Jesus comes secretly to the Watchtower building 
in Brooklyn, New York. Okay, so we have them in a contradiction here. So originally he taught 1874, well then later it's 1914. So there you go. Um, in 1881, Russell, by that time, has 30 congregations in seven states. Russell starts the unincorporated uh, Zion Watchtower Tract Society. In 1908, his headquarters moved to Brooklyn, New York. Russell sells something called miracle weed. Let me talk about that a little bit. He had this miracle weed. He said that grew five times faster than regular weed. Well, the feds get involved with this, and somehow, I don't know what the law would be, some sort of fraud, you know. Well, it ends up being proven that his wheat, not only does it not grow five times faster, it's inferior, okay? Well, uh, the Brooklyn, there was a reporter for the Brooklyn Daily Eagle. He exposes that, and everybody who challenges Russell, Russell sues. He sues him for libel. So he ends up suing this guy for libel. Well, the reason I point that out is this is a pattern in Russell's life. So in 1913, a guy, he's a reverend, J.J. Ross, he exposes Russell for being the heretic that he is, and Russell takes him to court and sues him for libel. Well, it's during this trial that Russell claims to be a scholar and that he knows Greek and all these, uh, also Hebrew, and that he's been called to be a minister. Well, it comes out in trial that no one has called him to be a minister, and he doesn't know Greek at all. And in fact, I've got, if you want to go, I don't have time to get into it, but I have an appendix in the back of my lecture where it shows an actual excerpt from the trial transcript, and it shows him admitting, yeah, I don't know Greek at all. He couldn't even recognize the Greek letters, okay? But yet, this is the man that starts this whole theological movement. So, he ends up actually perjuring himself during this trial. Well, in 1916, he dies. And then a man named Joseph Franklin Rutherford, he's actually called a judge because he actually was the one who was defending Russell during these trials. He ends up taking over the watchtower, and he is the one that really starts the movement into proselytizing, to really moving out, and he's the one also that gets them to start using the term Jehovah Witness. In 1925 to 1929, between these years, Rutherford prophesied that between these years, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would return visibly to promote the kingdom of God. So he ends up building this uh, large palatial estate. Well, once you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they don't show up. And so he just moves in. <laughs> Pretty fitting, right? I mean, isn't that perfect? So what do you know? So he moves in. Well, then he dies in 1942, and then another man, Nathan Knorr, takes over. Outreach increases like mad. And people, because this whole movement is built on eschatology, always date-setting, they keep pushing this guy to set a date for the Lord's coming. So what happens is Nor prophesies in 1966 that in 1975 uh, Armageddon would happen. It doesn't, of course. 1976, over a million Jehovah Witnesses leave. Okay, So they start getting it. They understand even Deuteronomy 18.20. The test for a true prophet is if someone prophesies and what they say doesn't come to pass, well, they're not a true prophet. Okay, So they even get it. Well, anyway... What happens then is in 1977, he's ousted, and this guy, Frederick Franz, takes over. He's their leading theologian. That doesn't mean he's a good theologian, but he's the best that they have. He doesn't make so many brash prophecies, and he's doing that deliberately to keep them from being exposed as the, you know, the heretics that they are. In 1992, another man named Milton Henschel takes over, and then finally, just to give you a little history where they are today, the Watchtower Society of New York Incorporated, that's what they're called, is currently, I believe, still under the president, M.H. Larson. I don't know what his, his first name is. So that's where we are. That's uh, who they are today. And let me, first of all, talk to you a little bit about the doctrines of the Jehovah Witnesses. There's four fundamentals that I think all of us have to know about them when they come to our doorstep. And the first thing is this. Jehovah Witnesses believe that the Watchtower organization is the prophet of God 
and the sole avenue for God's truth. And the reason why that's important is we're actually going to use this against them because one of their statements from their official magazine, which is their prophet, right, um, says that the final authority is the scriptures. So what we're going to do is we're going to cite their prophet who says the Holy Scriptures are the final authority, and then we're going to go to the Holy Scriptures and show them that they're deviating from them. You see what I'm saying? And so therefore, if they try to say, well, actually, it's the Watchtower Society that's the final authority, well, according to the Watchtower, the Bible's the final authority. You see? So we, we catch them there. So we're going to use this against them. Number two, they believe that to reject the organization is to reject God. Three, they believe only their organization can interpret the Bible and four, they believe the Watchtower magazine contains God's truth. Now, this Watchtower, because it has its tentacles and its arms into everything in their life, it's going to be very difficult to pull these people out of it. Okay? Because anytime um, they start to figure out what the Bible says, they're going to have people reaching in and saying, no, 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 you're, you're just falling for Satan's trap and so forth. So just realize that the Watchtower organization is very insidious in that it tells them that they are, in fact, the actual prophet of God. Here are that major eight doctrines that they deviate from us. Number one, and this is the most important, well, this is number two, there is no trinity. They, um, Jesus, they believe, is a creature. He is Michael, in fact, Michael the archangel. And then what happens is when he comes to earth, he becomes a man. And then after his spiritual resurrection, he doesn't actually raise from the dead bodily, according to this, what the scriptures actually teach. They believe that he's spiritually resurrected. And then what happens is he becomes the archangel again. And I'll, in my appendix, I actually have a slide that disproves that. Number three, Jesus was not bodily resurrected, but was a spirit being. Four, Jesus returned again invisibly and secretly to the Watchtower Society in 1914. The Holy Spirit is merely a force. It's not a person. Six, there is no eternal damnation. Hell is merely the grave. And again, this is the idea of annihilationism. They try to argue that the scriptures talk about destruction. And just a quick point of logic. You and I talk about destruction. We'll say that a car was in an accident and was destroyed. But just because your car is destroyed, it doesn't mean it ceases to exist, right? Well, that's the same way destruction is used in the Bible. Just because someone is destroyed or something is destroyed does not mean it ceases to exist. We never see that argument made anywhere in the Scriptures. So, again, that's what they believe, though. They believe a person is wiped out altogether. Uh, Seven, only 144,000 will go to heaven. And, of course, we as evangelicals, especially if you're a premillennialist, you believe this actually applies to the 12 tribes of Israel that are called out from the tribulation and they're sealed. But they believe these are for the Jehovah Witnesses. So you have two levels of Christians, the really awesome Christians, or I shouldn't say Christians, Jehovah Witnesses. They end up going to be one of the 144,000 while the rest of them are kind of a bunch of slackers and they don't get to enjoy heaven. They're kind of stuck on, um, or they don't get to enjoy the, the millennial kingdom, if you will. Eight, salvation is by works for Watchtower and only through the organization. And what I'll tell you is, you guys, they're going to try to claim that salvation is by faith. It really is in name only. Okay? They use, they say it, but they don't believe it. And I'll show you evidence of that. Here, let me give you their own words about the Trinity and the deity of Christ. This comes from the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, 1962. They write this, And yet the Trinitarians teach that the God of John 1, 1 through 2 is only one God, not three gods. So is the word only one-third of God? Since we cannot scientifically calculate that one God, the Father, plus one God, the Son, plus one God, the Holy Ghost, equals one God, then we must calculate that one-third God, the Father, plus one-third God, the Son, plus one-third God, the Holy Ghost, or three-thirds of a God, or one God, 
equals three-thirds of a God or one God. Any trying to reason out the Trinity teaching leads to confusion of mind. So the Trinity teaching confuses the meaning of John 1, 1 through 2. It does not simplify it or make it clear or easily understandable. Again, they believe that we are violating the law of non-contradiction. If A, the not non-A at the same time in the same relationship, and we're not. Because, friends, we don't believe that we have one God and three gods simultaneously. That would be a contradiction. What we believe is one category, God. We have one God, another category, and three persons. Just like we have one government with three branches. Nobody says to you, well, wait, the judicial branch is government? Well, I thought the executive branch was government. Well, no, it's, those are different branches of our one government, you see? So they're, they're misunderstanding the law of non-contradiction. Does that make sense? And the part of the law of non-contradiction that they're not understanding is in the, at the same time, the same relationship, because that holds to different categories. It makes us have different categories. So again, they're making an error, and their error is not understanding the law of non-contradiction. Okay? Now, salvation, what is that to them? In their own words, again, and this actually comes from, it was the Watchtower again in 1978. They're actually answering a question here. So they're talking about their own religion. It says, the religion teaches that to be saved, one needs faith demonstrated by Christian works, including the proper discharge of family duties, kindness, and concern for others, proper conduct, and zealously preaching. So what you'll see is that zealously preaching ends up being the end-all, be-all. That's the major thing that they must do. So they give words to faith. Yeah, they need faith. But what ends up happening is, you see everything highlighted in red? That's actually what they have to do to be saved. Okay? So salvation is, in, is by faith only really in name only. Let's put it that way. Okay? They don't actually live it out. Now, how do we witness to them? Well, let's use their own standard against them. And again, they believe that the Watchtower Society is the prophet of God. And here are their own words. They write this. And a writing says, what has religion done for mankind? The holy scriptures of the Bible are the standard by which to judge all religions. And we're going to say amen. We agree with that. The holy scriptures are what we should judge all other religions and cults by. All right? So let's use their own standard against them. And what you're going to see is that they preach a different Jesus and, in fact, a different gospel. Second Corinthians 11, 3 and 4 Paul says, but I am afraid that, and he goes on to say, just as Eve was deceived, you also are going to be led astray by the simplicity of the gospel. Then he goes on, if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you bear with this beautifully. Friends, they are going to be preaching a different Jesus and a different gospel, and we're going to prove that to them. The major point that we have to win on when they come to our door we must win the battle for jesus okay we must prove that jesus is god that is our only task and let me say this at the outset what the jehovah witness wants to do when they come to your doorstep if they're going to debate with you they want to go from passage to passage to passage to passage okay we don't want them to do that what i recommend is that you slow the pace down and you only handle one passage at a time and you don't get off that passage until you guys come to an agreement or they just leave. Why? Because the problem with the Jehovah Witness, first and foremost, is they don't understand the Scriptures. And so it doesn't do any good just to go from passage to passage to passage because they don't understand them. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to equip you tonight to devastate their arguments on every passage that we're going to bring for Jesus and the Trinity. Okay? So that's what we're going to do. That's our goal tonight. Well, let's start out with John 1.1 1, 1, then. And... What I want you to see is this is from their own translation, the New World Translation. That's the name of it. 
That's what the Jehovah Witnesses use. They believe this is the best translation. And the last thing you want to do is stand there with them on the doorstep and you have your version and they have their version, right? And they say, well, mine doesn't say that. And you say, well, gosh, mine doesn't say what yours says. And you're at a standoff, okay? What I want to do is help equip you to say, no, you're wrong and here's why. And, and it's all for the sake of their good. Remember, do it in love. It's all for the sake of their eternal destiny. Here's what their John 1, 1 says. In the beginning, the word was, and the word was with God, and the word was a God. And of course, the major problem that we're going to have with them is they believe that Jesus is a little God, not unlike, do you remember in Psalm 82, 6, the Lord calls the judges that he sets over Israel gods with a small g. In fact, Jesus uses this in John 10. But the point is the Lord of heaven, Yahweh, calls the judges over Israel little gods because they were his representatives. Okay, That is the same way in which the Jehovah Witnesses believe. um, That's the same thing they believe about Jesus. He is a little God in the sense that he is the true God, Jehovah's witness on earth. Does that make sense? So he's really not God at all. He's only a God in a, a little g in the sense that he represents Jehovah. Okay, so right here, friends, this is the major problem with John 1 1 with their translation. It's a God. And I'm going to prove to you that it cannot be translated using what's called the indefinite article, a God. Okay, now how do we do this? Well, our response to them is good grammar gives good theology. Okay, now what I hope is that you'll end up getting the sheet and you'll have, dedicate, by the way, a Bible for a cult, the cult and heresy bible right and just have it all loaded up with stuff so when they come to your door you just pull that out and you're all you're like loaded for bear okay so all right now here's here's what i want to do is i want to get into the greek of these last five words of this text of john 1 1 and here are here's the passage the last five words in is all what we're looking at kai theos in halagos what does it actually say and the word was God. Now, anytime we're looking at a clause like this, now just follow me through and write notes as you can. And by the way, let me go through this again. This is the word. Everybody knows what logos is, right? This is the definite article. This is a verb was. Theos, everybody knows what theology is, right? So that's God and Kai is and. All right? Now, when we come to a clause, the first thing we have to do in Greek grammar is we have to determine what the subject is. Okay? Now, how do we determine what the subject is? Well, we have to look for something in the nominative case, which is the case of the subject. And in Greek, it always goes by endings. And you'll see this as. You see that as ending here? And you have an as ending here. These both are in the nominative case, so they both could be a subject. Okay? Now, how do we determine which of these rascals? Is it God or the word that's the subject? Well, there's a pecking order, and write this down. In order to determine the subject, it's either first going to be a pronoun. That's, it's called pri- pronoun priority. Okay, well, do we have any pronouns in here? No, theos isn't a pronoun, and neither is logos. They're both nouns. Okay, well, then the priority goes down to number two. The second category is a personal name like Abraham or David gets priority to be subject. Well, do we have a proper name here? Nope, it's God and it's, it's word, right? Now, the, next, the third way we can tell if something is the subject is whether it has the article, the. The definite article. By the way, there's no indefinite articles in Greek. Okay, it's, they're just supplied in our English translations at times. All right. So, where do we have a definite article? Well, we have one right here. So, therefore, we know logos then is in fact the subject. Okay. So, this is the subject, 
And now this theos then becomes a predicate nominative. Now, what is a predicate nominative? I'm going to bring you back to your fourth grade grammar, okay? Just what you were hoping you could do on a Sunday night. Let me explain this in English. What's a predicate nominative? The other day, this actually happened to me, and I was, I was glad because I thought of it for this class. Somebody called. It was a stranger. And they said, is Eric there? And I said, yes, this is, and I almost said him. And I corrected myself. I said, yes, this is he. Okay? And I was like, oh, oh, I'd like a spot of tea. You know, I just, I felt kind of, kind of anyway, so I was kind of proud that I actually came up with it. But why, why should I say he instead of him? Because it's a predicate nominative. Anytime you have a verb of being, is, was, am, you are going to have a subject and then you're going to have a predicate nominative. Okay, so it's going to have... So in other words, I just say, this is he, this is the subject, is is the verb, and he has to be in the subject case too because it's a predicate nominative. Okay, does that make sense? So the same thing applies in Greek. So because we have this subject here, we also have a verb of being. This is was. Therefore, we have to have this as a predicate nominative. Now, I'm going to tell you why this is so important. Because we have a rule. A man named Colwell in 1933 wrote a dissertation on Greek grammar. And what he found was he found a pattern that is, I think, without exception. But he wasn't sure. He wasn't, he, let, it, let me put it this way. Every single case that he ever examined and other scholars have have always pointed his rule to be true. But it's not exhaustive. So maybe there's something out there that we're just not aware of. But as far as we know, this, this rule always holds to be true. Well, what is Colwell's rule? Well, this is what his rule said. And I'm going to lead you step by step through this. He said this, an anarthrous pre-verbal predicate nominative. Now, let's just stop there because I know anarthrous, a lot of people will go, wow, what's anarthrous? Let's go step by step. What does anarthrous mean? Well, anarthrous simply means it doesn't have the article. It's without a definite article. Okay, now remember, the definite article is here. Okay, but notice we don't have one before theos. Right? We don't have one before the predicate nominative of thas. We don't have this here. So therefore, it's anarthrous. If it had the article, it would be called articular. So this is an anarthrous predicate nominative. Okay? Now, is it pre-verbal? Well, yes, look at where thas is. You see where the verb is? We read Greek left to right, just like we do in English. So sure enough, thas is pre-verbal. It comes before the verb, right? So it is both anarthrous, in other words, it does not have the article here, and theos comes before the verb. Therefore, it fits this rule perfectly. Now, what does the rule say? Well, the rule says if we have this condition, and we have it here in John 1.1, 1, 1, the predicate nominative is normally translated qualitative, sometimes definite, and only rarely indefinite. In fact, look at the note here. In none of the studies was there ever found an example of an indefinite predicate nominative in this construction. Well, let me explain the significance of this. I'm going to put up what they are. Indefinite. Let's start here with the indefinite. What is indefinite? Well, that's how the New World Translation translates it. A God. So that's one way of translating theos. Now, notice not one time in the studies of this rule by all these scholars have they ever found one example where you should translate it a God with an indefinite article. Okay. Now, what's the significance if we did translate it with a God? We get Arianism, the idea that Jesus is not really God. He's merely a representative of the true God, right? Now, notice this too, though. We're not done. So indefinite is ruled out. It's just simply out, right? But let's go up to definite. Could we translate the God? What's the problem with that? What if the word was the God? 
Now we've leapt out of the heresy of Arianism and we've jumped into another heresy called modalistic monarchianism, which just means God changes forms. Okay, so in other words, that would be the view that we have one God in one person and he just changes costumes. Sometimes he's the father. Well, then he puts on his son costume and he becomes the son. In other words, if it is in fact definite that the word is the God, then we have no distinction between the word and God. They're the same person. See, what we're actually having here, friends, is the qualitative use of theos. Why is that so important? Because what the word is, God is, and what God is, is the word. In other words, they are of the same kind, but yet they're not the same person. Do you see how important that is? Jesus, the word, is not the father, but he is identical of the same kind. He is God. So, friends, Martin Luther said, this is the most beautifully compact theological statement ever written in the Bible. And I believe it. It wipes out two heresies using the grammar. Okay, isn't that beautiful? It wipes out Arianism and Sabellianism. Friends, this is written by the Holy Spirit. Friends, there's no way to argue this. This for sure proves that who the Word is, He in fact is equal with God, yet He is not the Father. So we have the Father-Son distinction but yet they're both equal. They're both God. All right. Now, what's more, let me give you a quote here from Daniel Wallace. He writes this. He says, in the New Testament, there are 282 occurrences of the anarthrus. Remember, that just means without the article, theos. At 16 places, New World Translation, remember, that's the Jehovah Witness version, has either a God, God, gods, or godly. 16 out of 282 means that the translators were faithful to their own translation principle only 6% of the time. That means 94% of the time, the Jehovah Witnesses, their translators, are violating their own grammatical principle. 94% of the time. You know what that means? They don't even buy their own grammatical argument. And what they're doing up here, you guys, is they're simply giving you a ruse. They're putting it in there because instead of allowing the text to drive theology, their theology is driving the text. Does that make sense? So the whole thing is, I know this can't be God. And you ask him, why? Because my theology says it can't be God, right? But that's exactly what the text is saying. It's not, and the word was a God. It's, and the word was God. All right? Now, let's go on to refute them. Let's talk about the Trinity. How do we prove the Trinity? Well, I like to go to the Old Testament. And I've used the Old Testament effectively when they've come to my doorstep. And the reason why I like it is they're unprepared for the Old Testament. They like the New Testament better. One passage I would use right away is Psalm 110.1. Here we have communication within the Trinity because it says the Lord, Yahweh, literally says to my Lord, which is Adonai. So you have Yahweh speaking to Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Remember, Jesus uses this very argument with the Pharisees. He asked them the question, and what was his question? He says, whose son will the Messiah be? And they say, well, he's going to be the son of David. Well, then he asked them, well, if he's his son, then how can he be his Lord? And then they said it, they didn't ask him any more questions after that, right? They were shot down. Well, let's use that. Let's use that with the Jehovah's Witnesses. We already got an apologetic, right, from Christ, right? And there's another question we can ask him. David is king of Israel. Because in other words, you can't apply this to David because David is king of Israel. In fact, this is his Lord. So who would his Lord be? He's the king. There's nobody higher than him in the kingdom. Who is his Lord? Okay, so let's use this and show, yes, we have communication between Yahweh and Adonai. We have communication within the Trinity here. Isaiah 9, 6. For a 
child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. So here we have the son is, in fact, Mighty God, a reference to the deity of Christ. Hosea 1.7, Hosea 1.7, we have Yahweh is speaking. He's giving a promise to Judah. Notice it says, but I, first person, will have compassion on the house of Judah and deliver them by the Lord, literally by Yahweh. So it would be like me saying, I will save so-and-so out of the building by sending Eric in. Well, that's me. I'm talking, I'm starting to talk like Herschel Walker. <laughs> Herschel Walker always talks about himself in the third person. You know, I don't know if you guys ever heard that. Okay, well, it's the same thing. This is very rare. So here we got God talking. He's talking in the first person. All of a sudden he switches to the third. Well, why is he doing that? Because who he sends is Yahweh, who is Jesus. That's who he's sending. The Father here is I, and he's going to send Yahweh, who is in fact Jesus. We have, again, reference to the Trinity. In this passage, they, they'll never have seen this before. Okay, and that's why I like picking some obscure ones that they won't be prepared for. Well, let's get to the New Testament. And I know you guys know your New Testament really well, and um, so I'll just give you a few examples. Matthew 3, 16 through 17, we're going to see the whole Trinity here. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice from the heavens said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We have a subject-object distinction between the Father and the Son, and we have the Holy Spirit as well. We have three members of the Trinity in this one passage. Okay, And I love to bring this one up. The other ones that I have them listed here, we won't go into all of them, but another good one is Matthew 28, 19, the Great Commission. Uh, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Right, And you'll see the Trinity referenced in all these other passages. Okay, So again, you want to show them that in fact the Trinity is in fact taught in the Bible. Now, what they're going to tell you is that the Trinity is not a word that you find in the Bible, but they use a term that's not found in the Bible either, theocratic kingdom. So what I like to say is, where is theocratic kingdom found in the Bible? It's not. The point is, Trinity isn't found in the Bible, but the concept is taught. Okay, We're merely terming our concept with a word, that's all. We're just, we have a category, what's taught in the Bible. We have Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and we have a, a category title for our Trinity. That's all. And they do the same thing with theocratic kingdom. So it's a little jab back at them there. All right? So again, we've got to win on the deity of Christ and the Trinity. That's what we're doing here. So let's get into another text here. And I actually had to take out in the appendix Philippians 2, 5 through 9. I just didn't have time to get into it. But nonetheless, I want to show you something out of Isaiah 45, 22 through 23. Notice what it says here. It says, For I am God, and there is no other. I have sworn to myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth, in righteousness, and will not turn back. That to me, well, who is this me? Well, it's God. Every knee will bow, every tongue swear allegiance. Well, what you'll see is Paul borrows from Isaiah 45 when he gets into Philippians 2. Philippians 2, 10 through 11, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and, and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So where is Paul borrowing this one? Well, right from Isaiah 45. Why? Because Jesus is God. That's why. Bob, actually, in his slides this morning, he had 
out of Romans 14, there's another reference that Paul has to the Isaiah 45 passage where he mentions the fact that every knee will bow. So he loves this passage, Paul does. And again, here he's attributing it to Christ. And therefore, it's great evidence to say, yes, in Paul's mind, Jesus is this God to whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess. And think about it, you guys. In Isaiah 48, the Lord says, I will give my glory to no other. He doesn't share his glory with anybody, yet he does with Christ. Okay, so who can this Christ be? Well, he's God. Let's go into some further passages in John 5.18. In John, let me back up a verse. John 5.17, remember he, Jesus had healed the paralytic man at the pool of Bethesda? And then in verse 17 it says they're, they're giving him grief because he's doing it on the Sabbath, the Pharisees do. And he says, well, my father's been working until now. And he says, so I'm working till now. Well, the Jews know, gosh, he's claiming to be equal with the Father. He's claiming to be God. And that's what's being talked about here. It says, for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So here the very antagonists and enemies of Christ know that he's claiming that he's God. Okay, now, the Jehovah Witness is going to come back to you and they're going to say, well, that was the Jews' misunderstanding. And John is merely reporting the fact that they're misunderstanding who he is. Okay? But don't let it go there. Let's get into John 8, 58 through 59. Here's the New World Translation of the Jehovah Witnesses. It says, Jesus said to them, Most truly I say to you, and by the way, I don't know why they capitalize you. This is right from their online Bible, the New World Translation. I don't know why they do that, but they, they do. Uh, Before Abraham came into existence, I have been. Now, does that sound a little odd? (laughs) Well, it should sound odd because what they're doing, you guys, is the Jehovah Witnesses are translating a Greek present tense verb, ego, amy, I am, and they're translating it like a perfect tense. Now, there is no warrant to do that. The only time we have that ever in the Bible is in John 14, 8 through 9. Let me just read that passage to you because you'll understand why we had to do it. The limitation is in the English. And so this is the only passage that we ever translate a present tense like a perfect. Let me read it to you and it will become quite clear. In John 14, 8 through 9, it says, Philip, this is Jesus, said to him, I'm sorry, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough. Now Jesus said, have I been so long with you? Notice that is in fact in the present tense. But we, we have to translate it like that because how would you say, Philip, I am so long with you? You see, if we do it in the present tense, it doesn't make sense. So for our English, the limitations we have, we have to put it like it's a perfect tense. But that's the only, the only reason we would do that. You see what I'm saying? Just because we wouldn't understand it in English. There's no reason to do that here in John 8:58. In fact, the actual Septuagint, you guys, supports the usage of I am because the translation is from ego amy. Why is that so significant? Because the present tense indicates that God always is. He's in a constant state of being. The perfect tense would say that he came into being at a point in time and his effect is still with us today. But that shows that he's not eternal. Friends, to give you evidence that I would use with the Jehovah Witness, I would point out in the very next portion in their own passage, it says, therefore, they picked up stones to hurl hurl them at him. Why would the Jews pick up stones to hurl them at Jesus if he said, I have been? No, Jesus said, I am. And where does I am come from? It comes from Exodus 3 when Moses says, Who should I say that sent me to the Israelites? And the Lord said, Tell them I am sent you. They knew exactly what he was saying. He was claiming to be Yahweh. In fact, you guys, this is a, when he uses I am, that's more of a theological statement than if he'd used Theos. This is the very name of God. This is the name that can't be uttered by the Jews. This is the holy tetragrammaton. This can't be used, friends. This is Yahweh's name. 
And they knew it. And that's why they picked up stones to kill him, because he was claiming to be Yahweh. And their own version attests to this fact. So again, the Jews are trying to kill Jesus because they know that he's claiming to be God. And finally, the coup de grace, John 20, 28. Thomas, remember, he's doubting Thomas. He won't believe until he feels or sees the scars. And finally, Jesus shows them to him. And it says, Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Okay, so here's a clear attestation to the fact that he believes Jesus is God. Now, the Jehovah Witness, you know how they reply to this? They say that Thomas was surprised. He says, my Lord, my God. (laughs) Okay, I mean, isn't that weak? Now, remember, he's blaspheming the Lord. He's using the Lord's name in vain. And Jesus doesn't correct him. You know, I mean, so the whole point, isn't it absurd? The lengths that these guys will go to. And that's in their own version. And so I would use that one for sure with them. But that's the only rebuttal that I've ever heard them be able to try to give. Now, let me show you some clear lies that they insert in the Bible. In Colossians 1, 16 through 17, let me read this. Again, it comes from the Jehovah Witnesses Bible, the New World Translation. Uh, because by means of him, this is Jesus up here, all things were created in the heavens and upon the earth, the things visible and the things invisible, no matter whether they are thrones or lordships or governments or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Also, he is before all things, and by means of him, all things were made to exist. Notice what I left out saying here. I didn't use any of the others, did I? And what does that sound like? It sounds like Jesus made everything. And if Jesus made everything, then he is the God of Genesis 1-1, isn't he? Well, friends, I just want to tell you, I copied this right from their website. This is their New World Translation. The only thing I did to this text is I highlighted these red. These are their brackets. And why do they put brackets there? Because they know that word doesn't exist. It's not there. It's made up whole cloth. And I think that when they come to our doorstep, we ask them, why are you putting words in this text? In fact, they're admitting, friends, the very fact that they put these brackets here, they're admitting that the the word doesn't exist in the text. Here's the word for other. There simply is no Greek Greek word for other in this text. The words for other is alas, used 38 times, heteros, 28 times, and peron. In fact, peron is only used for going to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. In fact, anytime the other side of the sea is referenced, it's always a reference to the Gentile side. So this would be completely out of context, so that's not used. But none of these are used. There's not one single word that could be mis, you know, even construed to be other. They simply insert a whole cloth. Why? Because it has to be all other things. Because he has to be himself a created being in their eyes. Again, their theology is driving the text rather than the text driving their theology. You see what I'm saying? So again, just blatant lies. Look at Colossians 2.9. This is a passage that clearly tells about the deity of Christ, and they deliberately lie again. New World Translation says, Because it is in him that all the fullness of the divine quality dwells bodily. All right. Well, the Greek word theates would be the correct translation, or I should say, Divine quality would be the correct translation for theates. Okay? But the Greek word here is the genitive form of theates. Hear the difference. Theates. Theates. Theates is used in Romans 1.20 when it talks about we may know the divine, the divine quality or what's... How do they use... Let me just look it up real quick. Romans 1.20. The divine nature. Somebody said that? Yeah, it's the divine nature. Okay? That's how it should be translated, divine nature, divine quality. Well, that's not the word that's used here. It's theates, which literally means deity or God. Much stronger word. So again, they're deliberately lying. This isn't just a whoops. There's a huge difference between the divine quality and God himself. Okay, And they're deliberately obscuring this, again, just like they did with other. Well, let's prove that Jesus is God. Let's use Titus 2.13. Friends, Titus 2.13 is a devastating passage. 
The New World Translation, let me show you their wayward translation again. While we wait, they write, for the happy hope and glorious manifestation of the great God and of the Savior of us, Christ Jesus. Notice, friends, in the Jehovah Witnesses version, they have two people here, don't they? They have the great God and they have the Savior. So notice they're talking about two people. Does that all make sense? Now let me show you the NASB translation, which is a good one. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the Lord I'm sorry, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice, God and Savior is one person, it's Jesus Christ. Here they have two different people. It's, the, it's God and it's the Savior. Whereas in the NASB, it's God and Savior, is Jesus Christ. Now, the last thing you want to do is they come to your doorstep and you get into the standoff again. They have their version, you have your version. How are you going to prove that you're right? You just say, well, that's not what mine says, and you just go back and forth like two kids, Right. Well, again, I'm sorry to do this, but we have to get into the grammar of it. All right? And we have another rule. We have another grammatical rule. Isn't that exciting? Here's a guy named Granville Sharp. He was actually an, an abolitionist. He was against the slave trade. Just a great guy back in England. And he wanted to learn the Bible so well that he could refute all those who tried to use the Bible for slavery means. So he became an expert in the Greek language. This guy is just a genius. So he actually noticed when he was studying the scriptures, he studied them in the original languages a certain pattern in the Bible, and it's called an article, substantive, chi, substantive pattern. Now, how much time would you have to have on your hands to notice that pattern, right? (laughs) This guy's got some time in his hands. But let me explain what this is. Again, we already looked at what an article is. That's just the. They always have definite articles in Greek, so you'll have a the, a substantive. What is a substantive? It's anything that functions like a noun. It could be a participle. It could be a noun or an adjective, typically, okay? So article, like a noun, chi is always and, even, and also. It's usually and in Greek. So it's going to be an article, a noun, an and, and then another noun. Anytime you have this uh, structure, when this pattern is seen, the two different substantives are the same people. Why is that important? Because you're going to see that this proves that the God and the Savior are the same person. And if they're the same person, well, then Jesus Christ is both God and Savior. You see why this is so important? This is very weighty. Well, there are three rules, and I'll get into this in a minute. Well, let me show you the text here. And by the way, here, right above, if you can, if you've got room, I want to just translate this with you. This is the definite article here. Two, it's a genitive, two. And it's actually, when we have an genitive construction, we usually don't translate it. It just sounds better in English. So what, how this would read would be, Our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Megaloo, this is what this is Megaloo here. Everybody knows what mega means. Mega means great, right? So think about Megaloo is great. Theu, this looks a lot like Theos. It just has a different ending because it's in the genitive form. Okay, so this is God. This is your Kai. This is your and. Hamon, um, that is a possessive pronoun. It just means ours. Okay? And then Soteras. Soteras, what does that sound like? Does everybody know what the doctrine of soteriology is? The doctrine of salvation. So soteros means savior. All right. And then we have esu Christu, which is Jesus Christ. Okay. So this is all in the genitive case. So again, it's our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, what we have to do is we have to see if the rule applies. And sure enough, it should be article, substantive, chi, substantive, and we have that exact structure. We have article, substantive, chi, substantive. So, friends, this rule seems to apply right at the outset. But there are three other rules. Neither of these substantives can be impersonal, and they're not. It's not like rock and boat or anything. They're, they're actual people, right? 
Uh, two, so this still applies. Number two, neither is plural. Well, fa'u is singular and so is satera, so we're still good on the rule. And number three, neither is a proper name. Okay, now how can you check if something's a proper name? Well, can you pluralize it? So in other words, you wouldn't pluralize Eric, my name. You wouldn't say Eric's. Okay, well, I guess you could, but... Well, anyway, the point is you don't, you, don't, you don't pluralize proper names, okay? So the point is you won't pluralize, or you can pluralize these. So, in other words, because you can pluralize God and soteros, therefore they're not a proper name, and therefore this rule applies. Does that all make sense? So, because this rule applies, the Granville-Sharp rule, both Theu and soteros are the same person, both God and Savior. And who does it apply to? Only Jesus Christ. It's the only person in the, in the sentence. So Jesus Christ, according to this passage, you guys, is both God and Savior. And this passage, or this rule, I should say, is very powerful because there are 80 such constructions in the Bible, and they all follow this rule without exception. There is not an exception to this rule. I love when there are no exceptions to rules. You know what I mean? Because in English, there's always an exception to the rule. There are no exceptions to this rule. So, and I love that, okay, especially in grammar. So you guys, when the Jehovah Witness comes to the door, what I recommend is having this sheet out. This is a devastating case because Jesus is both God and Savior. And there, there's no way to get around the grammar. It's locked. It's just, it's done. They're done. This proves that Jesus is God. But let's say you lose your sheets, right? You don't have your Greek grammar with you and all this stuff. Okay, let's go on to another way you can do it more simply. This is called the revelation trap. And I just learned this from a man named Ron Carlson. My friend Jeff Ramke, who's sometimes here, he uses this out on the street. I really like it. I've just never memorized it before. This is what he recommends. I like this. And by the way, have them read this. Have it read it in their own version. Okay, have them sit down and read it. Revelation 1.8. They'll read, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And ask the question, well, who is this? Who's speaking here? They must say Jehovah, right? Can't be anybody else. So then have them read Revelation 21.5-6. through 6. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it's, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I asked the question, who's speaking here? They, all, of course, must say it's Jehovah. Revelation 22:13. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Question, who's speaking here? They have to say Jehovah. Finally, here's the coup de grace. Here's where we get them. Have them read Revelation 1, 17 through 18. And this is what it says. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore and have the keys of death and Hades. Notice he's calling himself the first and the last, just like he did all the way through here. And the question we ask him is, when did Jehovah die? And this is devastating to them because all of a sudden they realize that the language that's applied to Jehovah, that he's the first and the last, is applied to Christ. And they can't get around it. Otherwise, Jehovah died, and he didn't die in their theology. So now you got them in a catch-22, you see? And so, friends, we can prove that Jesus is God. And that is the only task you have. Do not stray from it with a Jehovah Witness. That is your task. And once you've proven that Jesus is God, they have to leave their religion. Their religion is done. But let me say this. Our task as Christian ministers to them is going to be very difficult because, again, the Watchtower Society is going to try to always reach back and grab them. So we, these are people I believe we're going to have to befriend we're going to have to love on them. We're going to have to get them into a new community, get them away from the watchtower, and immediately we have to give them the gospel on the doorstep, but we have to get them into discipleship right away. Okay? So again, our mission is prove the deity of Christ. That's our only mission when they come to our door. Prove Jesus is God, 
and don't go from passage to passage. If you spend your whole time with them on John 1.1, if you've got your grammar sheet with you, do it. Or let's say you don't. Do the Revelation thing, but don't skip around. Because otherwise, they're going to have their stack of scriptures and you're going to have your stack and it'll just be confusion. You won't prove anything. So just stay with one or two scriptures all right, and prove that Jesus is God. All right. Now, what we'll do is we'll take a 10-minute break and we'll come back and then we'll start in with Mormonism.